Good morning, um, Bishop. Good morning, St. Peter's family and visiting friends. Um, today's reading comes from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. So, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then came Jesus to them and said, Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for these amazing words of Jesus, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts through them. For Jesus' sake, amen. It is really lovely to be back at St. Peter's, and thank you very much for your, your welcome. Uh, lovely to see Peter as well, who again with his mom Jean was very key part of this church um, in the early days, and uh, really, really good. And also see Arthur, who was a little boy when I was vicar of St. Stephen's Twickenham, so very nice to have Arthur. Now has children of his own uh, with us as well. That's great. And, um, and they were really special years when we moved down from Redditch. I moved down with a beard because everyone in the West Midlands had a beard. And at that stage, no one in Notting Hill had a beard. So I shaved off the beard. They came a bearded to the bearded and the unbearded to the unbearded. And, uh, and we found our way around Notting Hill. And as I say, it was a time when we had a, a very young family. And um, so we got to know, we had a key to Labrook Square Gardens. That was really nice. Spent a lot of time there. And, um, and our children came to the playgroup that we had here in church. And the nursery school, we had a nursery school over in the hall. And uh, it was a really lovely time and a lovely support um, that we had in those days. And they were exciting days. We saw a lot develop over that time. We, uh, we were excited to be able to, you know, really get this church up and running properly. The, uh, the church hall was, um, was let by a printing firm. And you, you don't like businesses to go bust. But, but in some ways, when it did go bust, um, it did give us amazing opportunities to take over the church hall on Portobello Road, which we, we didn't really have access to at that stage. And uh, lovely to see the nursery school really develop over that time. People paid what they could afford. So it was one of the few places in Notting Hill that really brought together those who had a lot of money, who could pay a lot, and those who had very little money, who paid virtually nothing. really became a, quite a, a powerful sort of symbol of what the Christian, uh, Christian faith is all about. And we started a prison fellowship group. There was, a, there was an amazing man that some of us remember. I haven't met him, seen him for a long time, called Tristram. Very shy man. Uh, a solicitor at that stage, he's now ordained and a vicar, but, um, but, but Tristram came to me one day and said, I think, very shyly, I think God's calling me to start a prison fellowship group in Wormwood Scrubs. Uh, and I initially thought, you know, he wouldn't have a chance, they'll sort of have him, you know, he'll be mincemeat. Um, but then he came up two or three months later and said very shyly, I, I've been talking to some other people and 
that the 20 people from three different churches who want to join me and start a prison fellowship group in Wormwood Scrubs. And it was just really exciting to see that sort of passion. And, uh, and, and our group then went out. We led the worship in the prison chapel once a month and uh, were, were leading Bible study groups in the Lifeless Wing. And lots of things bubbling up just because people were really passionate in their, their faith in Christ. A really, um, a really exciting time. And as I say, we made many mistakes as well. And uh, we will be thinking a little bit about what it means to, to follow Christ uh, and to step out in faith, even where that means making mistakes as well. But I'm just going to start with a text from a television program, which you, uh, you may know. And here's the text. You're just a bunch of bleeding amateurs. You're just a bunch of bleeding amateurs. They were the cutting words of Lord Sugar to his latest recruits on The Apprentice following their performance in a particularly challenging task. Starting with 16 candidates, the pool had been reduced one by one over the preceding weeks and was now down to 12. And it wasn't long before the 12 became 11 as the sugar finger was bearing down on a hapless victim and the sugar voice speaking those deadly words, you're fired. And thinking of those apostles going up that mountain just right at the end of Matthew's gospel, to meet with the risen Jesus. Always note the, the mountains in Matthew's gospel. Exciting things always happen on mountains in Matthew's gospel because Matthew is portraying Jesus as the new Moses. And Moses, of course, always exciting things happen on mountains for Moses as well. So this is the last of Matthew's mountains. And as they were climbing up the mountain to, to meet with the risen Jesus, those, those disciples must have felt that they too were just a bunch of bleeding amateurs that if the Lord Jesus had had more in common with the Lord Sugar, God forbid, he would have fired them all on the spot. We think of the cowardly way in which they deserted Jesus at his darkest hour and fled for their lives. We think of Judas's denial of Peter's, uh, of Jesus' betrayal, Peter's denial. That really stupid argument, just imagine looking back. Do you remember we argued about who was the greatest just as Jesus was preparing to kneel at our feet? And, and wash them. Just, they must have felt so ashamed looking back. And even now, as the risen Jesus met these 11 men, and it was just 11, because of course the 12th had gone off and killed himself. As they were meeting, just these 11 men, note that extraordinary sentence, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I mean, we don't quite know what Matthew means. What were they doubting? Were they doubting that they should worship? Were they doubting what they were seeing, but they really were a pretty sorry, disheveled bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. And whatever exactly uh, Matthew means by that phrase, some doubted, it's hard to imagine that here was a group of people who are about to turn the world upside down. It's a really important reminder when we read this famous passage right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the so-called Great Commission. Because when Jesus stands there and you first hear his words, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, we kind of think this is a rallying call. This is the sort of party conference. This is thousands of people he's addressing, all about to jump to their feet and give sort of him a, a, an amazing, rousing uh, round of applause. And yet Matthew contrasts these extraordinary words about going into all the world, this, this vast vision. 
you know, even the, the most deluded Alan Sugar couldn't really come up with that particular task. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Comparing that with this incredibly feeble means. These 11 men who just let Jesus down so badly. It's like that mustard seed, isn't it, that Jesus talked about early on in his, in his ministry. That tiny mustard seed, which he believed had the power in the Spirit of God, to, to grow into this most extraordinary tree. So we have this, this huge commission and, uh, and this tiny group of people. And that's sort of encouraging for us because sometimes it can feel like we're a tiny group of people. And especially when we're not gathered in church, but we're out there in our workplaces or our schools or whatever else, we can feel very tiny. We can think, well, actually, am I the only Christian here? And actually, this is a really challenging place to be. And yet think of the incredible impact of those 11 men. And of course, there was more back in Jerusalem as well, 120 in all by the time Jesus left them. But the extraordinary impact of that 120. Luke loves his seven times uh, table. Uh, sorry, his 12 times table. So at the beginning of Luke, you get the birth of a, a child. You then get him gathering 12 disciples around him. When we next year, we, we hear about the 72 get sent out two by two, that's six times 12. And then we get to the beginning of, Luke, uh, of Acts, uh, Luke's second volume, and we get 120. We're now up to 10 times 12. And then you have the day of Pentecost, which 3,000 added. That's 250 times 12. And then you get to 5,000, but that isn't a multiple of 12, so it blows my uh, theory out of the water. But there's this sort of sense of things multiplying. It's really exciting, multiplying. I've always been really interested in ministry that multiplies. When you send out people to be church leaders or youth workers or whatever, that's a sort of multiplication of the ministry. We did quite a bit of church planting from the church I went on to from here to Twickenham, sent out 40 or 50 people at a time to, to bring new life to churches in Isleworth and, and uh, in Sundbury and on the Ivy Bridge Estate. That's multiplying. And there's something about going forth and multiplying in the Christian church, which is a really exciting thing. And of course, it multiplied and multiplied and multiplied until today, as we meet here, we're meeting along with about 2.1 billion Christians all around the world and I did some sums with a calculator and discovered that if we were to hold hands we would encircle the world more than 80 times over that's our Christian family at the moment that's what's come from the witness of those 11 of whom some doubted so who was the one hiring them well the one hiring them was Jesus of course but a rather different Jesus on one level from those days some years back when a carpenter turned preacher had first called them to follow me. Back then, Jesus, you remember, had just emerged from a 40-day fast in the desert, a time where he'd been tempted to cut corners in his mission. The first of Matthew's mountains, you remember, he was taken up to a very high place. And, and in his imagination, a, a sort of voice came into his head that said, if you bow down and worship me I can give you all of this you can have all authority and Jesus had resisted that temptation just as he resisted all of the temptations over those 40 days in the wilderness and uh, had chosen instead to walk the way of the cross so now the risen Jesus on the last of the mountains the last of Matthew's mountains could speak those words with complete integrity he could say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
not given as part of a dodgy deal with the devil, but given by God, his heavenly Father, in response to a perfect life and a perfect death and a glorious resurrection. When the disciples first called Jesus Lord, they probably didn't mean much more than a sort of mark of respect, much like the apprentices saying, Lord Sugar, good morning, Lord Sugar. But following Jesus' death and resurrection, the phrase Jesus is Lord took on a whole new meaning. In fact, it became the sort of earliest Christian creed. Not just, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, but the key to it, the nub of it, was Jesus is Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, as we have in the arch just behind me. Jesus is Lord. All authority had been given to him. The one who had saved them, the one who had hired them, was none other than the, the Son of the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth. But to be honest, it really didn't look much like it. The Romans were still there in the promised land, clamping down on any behavior that smacked of rebellion or religious enthusiasm. People were still falling sick and dying. There were still wars and earthquakes and famines and tragedies of every kind, just as there are today. If Jesus had authority in heaven and on earth, why didn't he just sort that all out? It's a question that people still ask today, isn't it? Nearly 2,000 years later. Well, here's at least part of Jesus' answer to that question. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go. Therefore, go. It was the disciples' calling to go and to make a difference, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach, to make the world a better place because they were part of it to live out the lordship of Jesus in their lives in such a way that his love and his blessing and his kingdom will be extended into every corner of the earth. That multiplication. Every time we think about this later on, at the end of a communion service, every time you're called to go in peace, to love and serve the Lord, that is multiplication in action. That is the hundred or however many people there are in St. Peter's this morning saying, we're going to go out. There's little sort of trickles of water from this place. We're, we're going to multiply this so that the kingdom grows in us and through us and around us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. When Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer that we've just said, that was the second of Matthew's mountains, the Sermon on the Mount, he taught the Lord's Prayer and, and that lovely phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Jesus was saying to his disciples, you pray that prayer and then you live that prayer. You pray that and then you live it, that God's will might be done. His kingdom might come in Notting Hill, in your workplace, in your school, wherever you live, as it is in heaven. We might wonder what on earth Jesus saw in those disciples they weren't very clever people, after all. Later on, St. Paul joined their numbers, and he was a very clever person, but up till then, they weren't very clever people. They didn't have degrees in theology or anything else, for that matter. When they were later hauled up in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, we're told that they, they were seen as unschooled, ordinary men. They were just unschooled, ordinary men. Sanhedrin couldn't believe how confidently they were going about preaching the gospel because they were unschooled, ordinary men. But then Luke adds this little phrase. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
That was the key, unschooled and ordinary, but they'd been with Jesus. Here was indeed a bunch of bleeding amateurs. But my small knowledge of Latin, I was never, I did do Latin at school, but I was never very good at it. But my small knowledge of Latin reminds me of a verb that we learnt at school that goes a mo, a mass, a mat, a marmus, a mortis, a mant. Do you remember that? Any of you who did Latin? A few of us did Latin. Probably, it's pretty useless. Well done for those of you who didn't. Anyway, what does a mo mean? It means I love. I love. So an amateur is someone who loves what they're doing or loves the one for whom they're doing it. You're not doing this a job, you're doing it an amateur because you love it. And also, of course, those first disciples would become bleeding amateurs. Actually, all but one of them would die for their faith in the risen Christ. So there's something about that phrase which was absolutely real. And Jesus somehow saw that in amidst all their human fallibility, here were people who had extraordinary capacity, potentially extraordinary potential, to live lives of courageous loving. So just think back to that prayer of the second of Matthew's mountains. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. It's not a bad starting point as we ask the question, what does Jesus' great commission mean for us now? It's a prayer that encourages us to stand back and do some imagining. I wonder whether you ever do that. It's really important in our Christian lives. Stand back and start imagining. And what are we imagining? We're imagining what would it really look like if the kingdom of God were to come in my workplace or my home or in Notting Hill. What would it actually start looking like? What would it feel like if God were to answer that prayer? Well, neighbours would start loving each other, wouldn't they? That's one thing that would happen. The young and the old would rejoice in each other's gifts and their company. Our children would be safe and able to reach their fullest potential, even those children who've had a tough start in life. Our elderly would be loved and honoured for their wisdom and their life experience. If God's kingdom were to come, our churches, of course, would be packed out as the whole business of making disciples became a glorious reality. Our congregations would be sharing not only the gospel of God, but even their lives as well. That's a lovely verse that really came home to me very much in our time in Notting Hill. Uh, it's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Paul says, we loved you so much, we were prepared to share not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Some of you may remember, we, uh, we took in when we were living in 48 Labrook Road, which I think you're still in, aren't you? It's a three-bedroom house, no garden, but it's a three-bedroom house. And... Uh, and we took in the daughter of my training incumbent from Redditch days because she had come to London and fallen in with bad company. And so she came to live with us. And this stage we had, uh, we had three children. And then just after church on a Sunday morning, a, 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 a man came up and, and said to me, uh, we're having to move out, out of our house and we, we just don't know where we're going. We're really stuck. So I said, well, well, if you're really stuck, you know, talk to me next week. And, and, and the next week he came up to me and said, we're really stuck. So I'd sort of vaguely given a sort of offer that they could come and live with us as well. So, so we ended up, then went to my very long-suffering wife, Bev, and said, well, what do you think? So we ended up with five adults and five children under four living in a three-bedroom house, which was very interesting. We got to know each other very well. But that sort of set us in a pattern. We actually then went on to 17 years of having people living with us, future church leaders often. Uh, give them a bit of experience of vicarage life 
we moved from our three-bedroom house in Notting Hill to an enormous vicarage in, in Twickenham, which made, made it rather easier. But we had 17 years of that, just sharing not only the gospel of God, but sharing our lives as well. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but, uh, but it was great, actually. It was really, really great. Something about what would it look like if heaven were to come to this place? There would be no litter, be no violence, no fear, no abuse, no loneliness, no dishonesty. There would be healing on the streets. There would be strains of amazing grace emanating down Portobello Road. Thank you. Well done. That was very good imagining during the, during the pandemic. And that prayer, your kingdom comes, come on earth as in heaven, is, is really demanding of us. We do that kind of imagining. And then we start thinking, well, what is the little step that I could take this week? Or the little step we could take as a church, as part of our strategy moving forward. What is the little step that would actually help that prayer become a reality? Thinking back to Tristram. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. What would that look like at Wormwood Scrubs Prison? And then beginning to see that prayer become a reality through him sharing the vision with others and then getting involved. It is a wonderful thing when that kind of dynamic really gets going. I was in the church last Sunday morning in our diocese in, in Chertsey. And this church in Chertsey has just had a half a million building project and it was all a wonderful service. There was a packed church and the, the, the mayor had actually opposed the um, replacing of pews with chairs. So she was sitting there in the, in the service looking a bit grumpy on her chair. But, um, but apart from that, it was a joyful service. And they too were just about to start an alpha course, and, and they had an amazing woman called Tasha talking about how she'd been on the alpha course the previous time. Tasha was a remarkable woman. Tasha comes from a circus family, traveler family. She's home educated both her children, who've both just got places at Oxford University. So this is quite an unusual story already. And Tasha just shared about the extraordinary impact that finding Jesus Christ at the previous Alpha Course had made on her. And she just shone with it. And then the interviewer who leads the Alpha Course in that church, he said to her, so, so, so what's happening the next Alpha Course? And she said, well, I've got, I've got a dozen people coming along. She's got her auntie and her brother and her, all kinds of people and friends and neighbors. And, and the interviewer said to her, so why are they coming? And she simply said this, well, they knew how I was before, they know how I am now, and the difference is Jesus. So lovely, just a simple testimony with this woman just shining with enthusiasm in her newfound faith. It's a great joy and privilege uh, to be there. The difference is Jesus. And sometimes when we hear those stories, we think, well, well I don't really have a part to play in stories like that. I mean, I'm just, a, I'm just a bleeding amateur. But then so were the first disciples, unschooled, ordinary people, whose only qualification is that they had, quote, been with Jesus. And that's our main qualification too, however good our schooling, is that we have been with Jesus. Having pointed, us to those, having pointed at us with those scary words, you're hired, which Jesus does to all of us, baptized believers, you are hired. Jesus then continues, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So he promises that we will be people who are who have been with Jesus. So I wonder finally, what is the most important part of a service like this one? Is it the welcome that we receive? Is it the 
worship, the sung worship? Is it the praying together? Is it the, the reading of the scriptures or the preaching or the Holy Communion? You know, I sometimes do think that the most important part of the service is right at the end. Because if you remember, what happens right at the end is a couple of things. First of all, you're blessed. We have a blessing. In other words, we pray for God's blessing to rest upon you, upon your family, upon your workplace, upon the week ahead. It is a very special thing to be blessed. Never take that for granted. And then there's that little phrase, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And it's a reminder that we come together in order to go. We gather in order to be dispersed. We are filled in order to give out. We are encouraged so as to encourage others. We receive just a little touch of heaven so as to bring that touch of heaven to the lives of those around us. Keep that perspective and St. Peter's Notting Hill will be able to say with hope and conviction that the best is yet to come. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this really special church community, for this beautiful building, for the worship that has just emanated from this place for 150 years and more, sometimes at a very low ebb, sometimes when it's been buzzing. Bless you for Pat, Lord, and we pray your special blessing to rest upon him in these uh, years where he is uh, the vicar here. We thank you for all that has been achieved under his leadership, and we pray that you would continue to do more than we can all, all that we can ask for or imagine. We pray, Lord, that you would make us people of passion, confident in the living God. We pray, Lord, for activities and mission initiatives that are planned from here. And we also pray, Lord, for individual initiatives that just bubble up as your Holy Spirit stirs people's hearts to reach out in response to that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done in Notting Hill as in heaven. And we give thanks, Lord, that although we all feel totally inadequate for the task, Though we feel just as feeble as those men trudging their way up that last of Matthew's mountains. Recognizing how often we have failed you and let you down. Yet you have brought us into your loving purposes for the world. You've called us, Lord, to be the answer, part of the answer to that prayer for the coming of your kingdom. And we go, Lord, not just as individuals, feeble and frail as we are, but we go in the authority of Christ, the one to whom all authority has been given. So, Lord, pour out your spirit on this church, we pray. Guard and guide it. Draw many, Lord, into a living faith through its witness. Help it to continue to reach out to those who are poor and disadvantaged in this community. And we ask these things for the sake of Jesus Christ.
Son of the living God. Amen.